0: When a leader is fired from an organization, what are your initial thoughts? While this could be seen as a failure by the leader, what if, in some cases, it actually represents an organization that does not tolerate new ways of thinking? In this episode, I speak to Paul McCarthy, author of the upcoming book, Fired Leadership, about why we may need to reframe why top talent gets fired.
1: It's a bloody hard task to think differently from the crowd, from the herd, and We don't like people who do that because it makes us uncomfortable. And I truly believe that it's through that discomfort that we can grow and we can distinguish ourselves and organizations out there that want to distinguish themselves in, in a post COVID era. If we could even talk about post COVID, because I think more of that's coming. They're going to need to take more risks to your point earlier. They're going to, they're going to need to try and find or keep the talent that just doesn't care about hierarchy or bureaucracy or waiting so many months to get a timesheet code to be resourceful and entrepreneurial. You know, history is not going to remember those people.
0: Paul is involved in several game-changing quests to better understand what leaders and organizations of tomorrow will need to set themselves apart. Currently, he is exploring the topic of why leaders are fired. This will be the focus of his upcoming book, Speaker Series, and Leadership Development Programme, which will be underpinned by a counterintuitive theory that future leaders and organizations will set themselves apart by the current attributes that they are fired for today. So, ready to discuss the missed opportunities created by firing disruptive leaders? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Paul McCarthy, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me
0: on. I'm thrilled to have you on. I really appreciate the fact that we've had a couple very honest conversations so far. And I think it's refreshing. It's more of what we all need is to be very honest about what we see, what we've experienced, not even just now in this point in time during the pandemic, but in the past. Mm -hmm. How the things that we've learned over time are really coming to fruition now and how that helps us think about how we should start to shape a, a different type of future and with you, it really centers around improving leadership. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why you feel uh, leadership is broken. And it's taken you on this very interesting journey around challenging the status quo around leadership development.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fantastic to be able to have this type of dialogue. And I've been in the corporate world for about 25 years, and I've been in a, a range of leadership positions and helped develop teams and helped to work with clients in the management consulting context and. One thing I find really in leadership is that honesty is such a depleting commodity. We're so scared of being honest as leaders and having real world, real value conversations. And so I, I I've been around the leadership world in terms of developing leadership programs, designing them, delivering them to consulting firms and, and clients. And it never seems that we're having the conversations that matter. And We're just using the same old approach to developing leaders and send people on these different programs and they learn about this and that competency-driven approach. So they have to force fit themselves into learning a certain approach to being a leader. And what for me, your question around leadership in organizations being broken is that we're not having that conversation. The fact that the programs that we're designing, developing and delivering are actually not really developing our leaders. Um, In fact, They're just tick box approaches. And yeah, of course, with the pandemic, we're seeing such a a different way of leading um, increased empathy, rapport among staff and real conversations. However, my suspicion is those things may be short-lived. And it's like looking at the Band-Aid rather than the actual problem. You can find out more about an organization's leadership approach by being a fly on the wall around the water cooler and listen to the conversations that are happening. And I I just find that leadership and leadership teams, a lot of them are self-serving, and their approaches are rather than being collective, they're very egotistical-driven. And you know, that's kind of pushed me on my path to be where I am now in terms of writing this book that I'm I'm writing about changing the way that we develop future leaders. Because I think that you know, if you think about how much money we spend on leadership development, I don't know if listeners are aware of this, but around the world we spend about four hundred billion dollars every year on leadership development and that leadership development is ineffective and you know studies after studies have shown that a fewer and fewer numbers of CEOs actually have confidence that their future leaders can address their future challenges in fact i think i think it was uh, brandon hall group or uh, ddi who did a uh, survey a few years ago of about 30,000 leaders and only 14% of those CEOs felt that they had leader bench strength for the next three to five years in terms of those leaders being able to address their challenges going forward. So I think we're not really having the conversations about why our leadership system is broken. We keep throwing money after money to a system that really is, in my opinion, a tick box approach to leadership. And we're seeing the same old leadership authors as well spouting the same statistics. And people seem to be fearful of buying the hand that feeds them. And so we're not having that conversation about why the system is broken. And I'd love to have a platform where we can have those honest conversations and really move people forward. And that's not to say those conversations will be painless, far from it. They will actually need to challenge the status quo, because I think one of the other things you you talked about is, you know, why do I feel that challenging the status quo is so important? And I I think it's quite simple. I think if we do what we've always done, we're always going to get what we've always got. And if you look at the average I don't know, job description, role profile, or, you know, even the initial interviews that you have when you're going in as a leader to think about starting working in an organization, you'll hear the buzzwords about we want you to challenge the status quo. you know, integrity is important to us, transparency is vital. We want you to be very open in how you support the organization. And then people want disruption until it actually knocks on their door. And when they do, people get fearful. And so, you know, as a leader myself, I've been recruited through very expensive and time-consuming leader recruitment processes, and all the way through six or seven interviews on average to, to, become the, you know, to get the leader role that I've got in respective firms that I've worked for. I've been told by, you know, board members or CEOs or HR VPs or peers that I would be working with, or those that are reporting to me, you know, it's really important to challenge the status quo. And so... I get on board as a leader in organizations that I've worked with in a leadership capacity. And as soon as I start to challenge the status quo, you know, ask those questions that no one wants to ask, dig for the, the uncomfortable truths that people seem to hide in the corner. People seem to shut down, disengage. And it's as if I've stepped on a bunch of ego-based leadership landmines. No one wants to talk about the uncomfortable, yet they've just spent a whole lot of time and money recruiting a leader saying that that's what they want from that leader. So there's a bit of a hypocrisy in our leadership today. And nobody's also talking about that. So I'm curious, you know, in terms of your your experience, Rebecca, like, as you've seen with honesty and leadership being key to what you're doing, what are some of the ways that we can address the hypocrisy in leadership? Because I have a few ideas.
0: <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> you're writing a book about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and I can't wait to read it. So what you said is spot on. I'd say really that point around people being hired to change the status quo, but then when they try to are shut down or shut out Mm. and I've experienced it myself, I have been hired to change the status quo and then been shut out. I have seen it happen to other people and i have also seen other people afraid to challenge the status quo. Or step back from trying to challenge the status quo uh, because they're fearful of their position or their ability to advance. And it really is around that story of what leadership is or what leadership should look like. And then also around that the ego piece, I think, is really valid. And I think a lot of folks feel it. I've talked to a lot of leaders that really are not ego-based that want to challenge the status quo, that feel they can do better for their people to help their people be more successful, recognize that they're struggling, but also feel beholden to unrealistic expectations from either their leadership or their organizations. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these might be middle managers, especially I think that I call it, they get a pressure sandwich, they get pressure from both sides. They want to do the right thing for the organization. They want to do the right thing for their people, but they don't always feel equipped to do so because the status quo as you mentioned before, it just isn't working. And so now it's really around, unless you challenge that, bring new solutions for people to try, and then we start to gain any level of success around those. or at least try to learn from those new experiences. That's when things start to evolve and get better. So if CEOs are looking for leaders that can come and bring them a better direction and challenge the status quo, they need to be humble enough to be able to accept the discomfort that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And um, hopefully... We get more and more leaders that are willing to accept that level of discomfort as an inherent part of effective, disruptive change. Yeah.
1: I'm writing a book on the concept of reframing why we fire top talent. And it's within the backdrop of the fact that we're not equipping our leaders for the future in terms of the skills, the attributes, the competencies, the traits, whatever you want to call it, the myriad of descriptors that's used to develop future leaders. Again, it could be its own book because we talk about skills and competencies and you know, there's all sorts of opinions out there by academic scholars and peer-reviewed journals and stuff. But really, essentially what it comes down to is having the conversations that really matter. And the CEOs that I've worked with in, in organizations as a leader, if I can give you an example, the, the firm shall remain nameless, of course, to protect the guilty, as it were. But, you know, I was hired as a leader to grow a business. And so I went through six or seven interviews. And every step of the way, I was asked, you know, what, what would your leadership style be like? You know, how are i And I'm, I'm actually quite humble as a leader myself. And I actually... Believe it or not, this is a dying phrase as well, but I truly practice what I preach. And so, you know, every step of the interview process, I was asked this question, that question. And, you know, part of my role was about business development. And I come into the organization. So, again, timely and expensive recruitment process. And by the way, it costs about two to four hundred percent of a, an executive space salary to replace them. So and remember that for the listeners as I tell this story because – there's a huge void opening up in our world, especially in North America, around the true costs of disengagement. I think Gallup estimated at over a trillion dollars, and I'm writing about this in my book as well. Essentially, I was hired to, to grow a business, and one of the things I did first was to organize one-on-ones with some of the other leaders in the business. And this organization had a $50 million revenue target to achieve in one, one year. And so I had just come from the UK and there'd been a recession and I was in the process of building a, a consulting firm in the UK and it imploded because of the recession. And the re- one of the reasons it imploded was because it didn't diversify its revenue base. So it only focused on getting business from one client sector. And so obviously I, I'd learned some lessons from that experience, came over to Canada, was, was headhunted to join this this organization. Three, six or seven interviews later, I'm, I'm on board And I'm having conversations with the business development directors. And I ask, what is your strategy for achieving this $50 uh, revenue? And the answer I got, and I won't name the the firm, but the, the answer was basically, we're, you know, fill in the blank. This is our, you know, we're X. We don't need a strategy. And then I dug deeper on that. So for instance, you talk about humility and being a humble leader. That was anything but demonstrating humble leadership. It was actually very ego based and narcissistic, but that's another conversation. What then proceeded to happen when I was offering some ideas and suggestions from the experiences I've had in the UK on how this organization could obtain its target, I was told, in fact, this is going in the book uh, that I'm writing, which is I Have Suits Older Than You. And, you know, I was like, well, this, this tells me a lot about the leadership approach for this organization. And subsequently, two and a half years later, I left that organization. And you know, the cost to replace me would have been between two and four hundred percent of my base salary. Now, this kind of thing is happening all over the world in all organizations of every type, you know, volume and sector specialization. So, if you could actually calculate the costs of, um, essentially, in this case, I was fired as a leader, so a very expensive process to recruit me paid quite a lot of money and then i was fired for actually demonstrating the attributes that i was asked to demonstrate in the interview process so challenging the status quo can sometimes be uncomfortable in fact i think amanda Lang has written a book called the beauty of discomfort in which she talks about you know true progress and in innovation can only come from actually moving through and that discomfort And so what we have, Rebecca, is this kind of myriad of different opinions and thoughts and ways of leading. And really, at its heart, we're not recruiting the types of leaders that we need in order to move our organizations forward and truly become a differentiator in the market in our chosen fields as we go forward in the future. And so my my book is really writing about the fact that we're firing the very talent that we need for the future of leadership to flourish. And the traits that leaders are being fired for today, which by the way, they're being recruited for, but the traits that I'm talking about are not specifically mentioned in the recruitment process, but they're, they're kind of characteristics of, of leaders uh, that, I've, that I've developed a methodology and a framework around. We're getting leaders on board, and then we're actually firing them when they demonstrate these types of traits. And my counterintuitive approach to the future of leadership, which is a departure from the typical and well-established names out there that, as I said, just rehash the same approach, is that we need to hire the talent that we want to fire. And so if this podcast reaches any one individual, it doesn't matter to me at scale. You know, If it's one individual that takes something from this, it's to reframe the way that we look at the talent that we want to fire. Because actually, the traits that we want to fire those leaders for – Are the traits that we need in our future leaders, and especially as we're coming into an era of self-managed organisations, and you know, we're we're dropping the the traditional draconian hierarchical matrix-driven approach to organisational structures. We are going to need a new way of leading. We are going to need a new way of leading in a structureless organisation. And so, I think you know, the cost to our economy, quite frankly, as I said earlier. It's, it's over a trillion dollars of disengagement that occurs when we don't develop the leaders with the certain traits that I'm writing about. The, the contributions they could make to the, to the organization are phenomenal.
0: We're basically
1: firing our saviors, essentially.
0: Wow. And that's
1: a costly mistake. Very costly. Very costly.
0: Right. But if you really are looking to find those leaders that can bring you into the future, which will require an ability to adjust course as needed, require an ability to take some level of risk in any organization. Uh, Even, you know, I think there's some organizations, of course, that are more risk averse than others. But taking risks, I feel, is a very important part of the future of leadership. Because things change very quickly. If you're not willing to take risks and try something new, um, because like we're talking about, like, and if any listeners want to think, I mean, Paul and I have ideas around the future of leadership. Um, Some of them are tested. Some of them are not as tested as we'd like them to be. But that requires some people willing to take a chance of disrupting the status quo and trying something new. So how important, are you talked about different traits for the future of leadership or the the important traits for leaders, um, for organizations today. How important do you feel the ability to take appropriate risks is in the leadership of the future?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, I think we need to throw out the playbook, quite honestly, Rebecca. I think we've been safe with our baby lanes and the 10 pin bowling analogy. You know, we've, we've put lanes in place that keep people safe. And, you know, if I just think back through history and some of the inventions that we've had, whoever thought that we would fly planes, the Wright brothers were looked at as quite. Mentally unstable, uh, you know. For instance, when they tried to fly planes, and that innovation led to what, what it is today. Many of your listeners may not know that the Lenovo ThinkPad, for instance, that red dot in the middle, which is that mouse, that would never have been developed if the the engineer hadn't been brave enough to face his boss, who, by the way, had a different idea for making the trackpad on the laptop more efficient. That individual persevered and faced being fired, basically, to talk about his idea. And after a little bit of ego-based jostling and discussion between the two individuals, the Lenovo ThinkPad actually developed a version where that red trackpad is now a common feature of that brand. And after they did that, sales of that particular ThinkPad quadrupled within the first three or four months and has remained one of their best sellers ever since. So the ability to take risks is absolutely critical for continued innovation. And, you know, one of the traits that I talk about, I call it fresh thinking, is the ability to think differently. Um, when everyone in the boardroom is nodding their head um, because they are in deference to the boss in the room, the hierarchical you know structure that seems to happen. Everyone seems to defer to the boss and the boss is always right. I'm a bit of a, how do I put it, a detractor from that because an idea is an idea. And if you have the ability to be creative and think differently, you can make some true progress and, and change the way that, that we, we lead and we disrupt the marketplace. Like, for instance, Steve Jobs, you know, not particularly nice individual in my opinion, but, but a, a genius in many other respects. If he hadn't have been who he was, we would never have invented the, the iPod. We would never be walking around with a device that's less than five inches by four and in, three inches that has thousands of songs on it. No one could have ever thought that. But What we're doing, I think, with leaders today is we're quelling their creativity, we're we're squashing their light. And creativity, you cannot have creativity, in my opinion, and and many others that I cite in the book as well, without the ability to take risks. And as a leadership cadre, we have been almost conditioned to not take risks. Uh, And I think it's time that we disrupt that. And we have to disrupt the approach that we take to leadership. Because if we don't, quite frankly, the consulting firms that I've worked with that you know of and that our listeners know of, they're just going to continue to apply the same old leadership programs to the same old leaders. And and guess what? These leaders are not even being consulted on what they want to learn about. Um, they're just going through the tick box mentality and, and it's to play it safe. I mean, just before you go on to your next question, I mean, one, one of the things that always sticks in my mind about one of the organizations I was recruited to build was they said, Yeah, we want you to be entrepreneurial and take risks and you know, all of that great stuff. You know, the stuff that they put on the one page strategy maps that you laminate and put on the wall. Yeah, you know, they wanted me to do all that stuff. The moment I started to do that, I was told that quite literally I had to wait six months to get a timesheet code to be entrepreneurial. So if that's the kind of organizations that exist today, yet in the recruitment processes they're bringing on leaders that they're saying, we want you to be this and that. And then when you actually start working with them, it's the complete antithesis of what they've recruited you for. What is? Why aren't we having the conversations about that? I mean, that, that's partly what, what the book goes into as well. But that relies on our ability to take risks, to disrupt. And quite frankly, not always are the tried and tested routes Going to work, but you know, if we didn't take those types of risks and embrace that attitude towards failure, then I don't think we'd make much progress anyway. We just stay stifled in our same old lane. Here are my initial thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of great examples of organizations that have resisted change and fell from grace, so to speak, right? So, uh, I, I think it's a time for us to think. You know, how do we get outside of our comfort zone? Because there's, of course, a lot of safety. And the things that are familiar, the things that folks might have learned in business school, either many years ago or even in the recent past, I think there are, from an education perspective, some institutions that are doing more to think about how to integrate critical thinking into their educational programs. So not necessarily just thinking about what has worked in the past. But rather, what are the skills that future leaders are going to need? And this is something that organizations themselves are trying to figure out. Some organizations are trying to figure out different types of leadership development to get these skills. But mm. I think an interesting question might be, too, you talked about the traits of the leaders that we actually need in our organizations. Do you feel these traits are innate People are born with these traits, or do you feel like these traits are developed? Like, what do what do you feel needs to happen to bring in those leaders? Is it something we need to develop in our leaders, or something that we should look for as a part of people's personality?
1: Yeah, another interesting question because in the leadership world, many of the listeners may know this as well. This is a common knowledge that. There was something called the traits theory, which has prominence for many years, which basically said in a a nutshell, that great leaders are born and you have a certain number of traits. And if you don't have those traits, then you can't be a, a great leader. Now, that was quite a narrow-minded view, in my opinion, what traits theory was really trying to talk about. And it was replaced by the competencies approach to leadership development, which is essentially saying, what are the things that you need to master in order to be a, a great leader? And you can acquire those competencies. Now, there are pros and cons with both of those theories about how to develop leaders. And I, I don't think we have the time to go into every single pro and con of those. And I, again, I write about that in, in the book as well. But but I think my view on the traits that leaders need is that they can be acquired. Now, you're not going to suddenly teach a course on, you know, for instance, I mentioned one of the traits is fresh thinking, which is basically thinking differently, upsetting the apple cart, you know, questioning the way we've always done things. You're not going to be able to teach that trait unless someone really has an inquisitive nature. Um, Can you teach an inquisitive nature? I mean, this is where there's there's some sort of the nurture nature debate as well, because you can teach people all you want. But the effectiveness of teaching, if you're trying to upskill someone, is in whether it changes their behaviour, and and is that sustainable behaviour change. But underpinning all of that is... The passion, you know, if someone doesn't have passion for what they're doing, it doesn't matter what you teach them either. They're not; it's not going to stick. So, I mean, I think we need to throw out the skill sets, the competencies, and just look for a few key traits that leaders need to have in the future. Because uh, I think we overcomplicate the whole discussion. And you know, there's if you just did a Google search, for instance, on the types of leadership skills needed or traits needed. Competencies, needed, you'd find millions of of hits, you know. And I think we we overcomplicate it because at its core, what we're doing is we're putting a set of prescribed things in front of leaders and saying you need to fit into this box. Well, how about asking leaders what they need? How about actually using the outcomes of those conversations to develop tailored programs to each leader's needs? Now, the tractus might suggest. Well, we want to standardise and simplify because it's more cost effective and we've got data that tells us these types of programmes are effective. Yet then why do we also have data from the leaders themselves when they've gone through these programmes telling us that they don't feel those programmes are relevant to their needs? And so again, it comes back to the, the hypocrisy of leadership and the conversations we're not having. But for me, uh, I, you know, the book I'm writing is based on a set of traits. You know, the ability to think differently, so fresh thinking, the inquisitive nature, someone a leader that's real and accountable, a leader that can be expressive and challenging, and a leader that can be direct and transparent. Uh, they spell the five traits, which I've developed a methodology and framework around. In between all of the expensive skills and traits and competencies, training and material that's out there. These five traits underpin everything that you'll see in leadership programs. And it just so happens that I'm writing a book that's essentially saying that the leaders we're firing have these five traits, and these traits are not fully being developed or recognized or appreciated, in fact, encouraged in the organization, because nobody likes to talk about this subject in general, about fired leadership. I'm rambling a little bit, but I uh, just want to give some time for you to reflect.
0: Yeah, I think it's reframing what that might mean, because a lot of people would hear a fired leader, they would think of failure, where many others might hear that and, and read your book or read the concept you have in your book and realize it has more to do with a sense of non-belonging in that specific environment and how belonging is defined in that environment. Um, and I've seen that over and over. I know leaders personally that were fired or let go for reasons I never fully understood, but it really always came down to they didn't meet some kind of mold or perception of what leadership should be. So I look forward to having the ideas in your book out there so we can think about what that really means for leadership of the future, open up those dialogues and discussions. I'm going to transfer too into another form of leadership that we hear a lot about, which is thought leadership. So what you're doing is really being a thought leader in relation to why leaders are fired or what those fired leaders could do for the future of leadership. Um, But that journey towards that thought leadership, a lot of folks have this idea about the thought leaders out in the world, your Brene Browns or name your thought leader. And a lot of people perceive that they've got it all figured out that their journey to get to where they're at is because it was just kind of like floated maybe to the to the place that they that they've landed and now they're a thought leader but that journey is difficult and you're kind of taking that journey now i'd be interested to kind of share a little bit about the struggles of that journey or trying to reach that place of thought leadership
1: yeah yeah it's it's something that's kept me up quite quite a few nights and by the way for the the listeners and for anyone that's interested in talking about this subject i'm more than happy to make myself available to talk through the actual reality of what it's like to go through this process, you know, writing a book, developing a brand, taking this out to the world. It's a a counterintuitive approach to leadership development that I'm writing about. It's going to be divisive and it's it's challenging, it's painful, and and yet there's a burning quest and desire that I have to continue this this journey. My mindset shifted from quite literally writing a book in a basement to considering writing a book and developing a brand and positioning myself as a global influencer on this topic because no one's writing about this topic. So I have quite literally pivoted in the last couple of years to position myself from you know, writing this in a basement to actually there's something here that I want to bring to the world and I want to write about it. We, we need to look at this topic you know, rather than a taboo subject, keeping it under the stairs, we need to bring it out into the open and talk about it, have those uncomfortable conversations. and. Um, I want to be the, you know, the thin edge or the, the tip of the spear that's bringing this out into the world because I'd like to change the narrative and I'd like to enhance our ability to have conversations that matter around this topic. So having said all that as, as a positioner, my journey to become this thought leader is, is has had its struggles. I've, uh, I was never never really knowledgeable about the whole publishing industry, the, the writing industry, the, the whole world of what's involved in writing a book. And if I can briefly just outline what's happened on my path, I think it, it might help others as well that I'll gladly have offline conversations with. I started writing the book myself. And at that point, I was just focusing on writing a book. And then I hired a ghostwriter but in the context of being a coach. And so I realized um, from that relationship that I had you know, all these people that I'm about to talk about um, were well-intentioned and, and great people. But uh, the first writer I hired as a coach made me feel quite insecure about my writing ability. Now, again, full disclosure, there's, there's a lot about all of this journey that I've learned about myself. So It's not easy looking at yourself in the mirror and and questioning yourself and your capability and whether you're up to the task. And so the writer that I had initially had made me believe that my writing style was too academic, too analytical, and therefore he could actually take the book forward. So so I, I worked with this person in the context of them writing the book. And as I worked with them, again, great, great individual, really, really nice guy. I realized the manuscript was deviating from my vision. And it was moving more into what I call the realm of an expose book. So, right about all the companies that have fired Paul McCarthy as a leader. And essentially, this book isn't about that. It's about. You know, thought leadership about a different way to develop leaders. So I didn't want to sit on Oprah's couch. you know that's not the purpose of the book to talk about all these big name companies and clients that way. So I had to get rid of, ironically, I had to fire the, the initial writer that I was working with because he was taking it away from the actual quest of the, the journey itself and why I'm here. Again, that was a very painful experience for me, one that led to self-reflection and I then went back out to find a, a new writer. And he had some challenges as well, uh, personal challenges, a uh, great guy, fantastic writer, and and got the, and gets the vision and really is behind me. However, we we're all human, right? And so we all have some challenges. He had some challenges that, uh, you know, it's not my story to go into. So I won't on this podcast, but he, you know, he had to take some time off. And so, you know, just a, at the same time, I was uh, I was starting to dabble in the world of the publisher. So, for your listeners, they're probably aware that three types of publishers out there: the traditional publishers like Simon Schuster's, etc. Uh, then the self-publishing route, which is basically typically, you know, you do it yourself. You're in a basement, you know, not a very good printer. I am generalising, of course, but uh, you get what you pay for on self-publishing. And then there's somewhere in the middle, self. Um, it's called partner publishing hybrid publishing and so i landed somewhere in the middle and i found a publisher that i worked with um for a while i found through that experience that they again also misinterpreted what i was doing and you know at this point i'm thinking to myself is it just me (laughs) is it does everybody not understand what i'm doing or am i not articulating it properly because again I, i was getting some website. Uh, designed by them and other stuff I was doing they were glorifying it. and it was almost like you know here's who's hired Paul and here's who's fired Paul and here's the book on it all and I again I felt this internal pulling to say this isn't what the book's about I need to get the right team in place to really understand my vision so I've had all of that going on behind the scenes and the writer that I was working with more recently uh, had some challenges and then you know, I was working with a website designer after the first publisher because I had to, to move past the first publisher because, again, they took it away from where it was going. Um, I worked with a researcher who kind of dropped the ball a few times and thought that, you know, research was cut and paste, basically. So, you know, and again, all these experiences have taught me so much about myself. And that's what I'd say to the listener as well. It's like, be open to what comes through this, like, because. You know, your listeners might be thinking, well, this guy's just too difficult to work with. And believe me, it was something I asked myself as well. But I was always being pulled along to something bigger than me. And as a, you know, I'm just the mouthpiece of whatever this becomes. And so then COVID hit and, you know, my writer that I was working with was unable to continue for a while. And I was faced with a, a decision and I decided to write the book myself. And I, I went off to the side of a mountain, grew a long beard, long hair, and I wrote 125,000 words of my manuscript. And so that whole journey to get there had taken about two years. And, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, you know, and that I say that with all humility, because writing a book is such an arduous, time-consuming process that will bring out every single insecurity you have. It will make you, unless you're one of those very wealthy individuals that can afford to do this off the side of your desk, it will make you bankrupt. You know, I would suggest to anyone listening to this, don't go into this venture thinking that writing a book is going to make you money. Do it for the right reasons. Have a passion that, that guides you. Like, my passion for this book and the brand that I'm developing around it to, to take out to the world and speak. And I'm developing a leadership program based on the book. I'm going to be developing a series of webinars, workshops, consulting for C-suite and VPs of hiring, uh, hiring managers and everything. That whole process, you've got to really believe in what you're doing and why you're doing it and not expect any revenue to come from it. And I know that sounds very contradictory, um, because everyone I talk to in publishers, they've said, you know, we're all about trying to get this book sold uh, into shops and everything like that. And I'm like, well, that's great for you. But all I'm really interested in is getting this out into the world to have a conversation about something that matters. And if one person changes the way that they look at the leaders that they want to fire because of my book and brand, to me, that's a success, Rebecca. But yeah, it's, it's not been without a struggle. its struggles. Like, I've lost some friends from this. I've had to minimize some of my contact with some family members because of this, because people have not really understood why I'm doing it. And at the surface level, they, th- they say things like, well, everything's going fine. you know. Why, why would you want to upset the apple cart? And that's precisely why I'm doing this, to upset the apple cart. Because if you listen to those conversations around the water cooler, if you listen to those conversations that happen when you're leaving the office for the night, or whatever it happens to be, or you talk to your spouse at home, the system that we're working in is broken and nobody wants to buy the hand that feeds them. Nobody wants to talk about something that's going to aggravate or be divisive. And I do. you know, And I I make the joke that I'll become a LinkedIn pariah or nobody would want to work with me. And and that's fine because my conscience will then be clear um, because I'll be able to have talked about a subject that I'm deeply passionate about and nobody else, else seems to want to talk about it. So to sum all that up, it's been quite a challenging, turbulent roller coaster, both professionally writing this book and, and the various you know, dabbling in an unregulated industry like the publishing world. And, and there's a bunch of charlatans and witch doctors out there who will promise so much and deliver so little to the, the actual craft of writing the book itself. I and mean, it's bloody difficult. And yet, yeah, we, we have all these types of products and courses out there and they write a book in seven days and all, it's all nonsense. Listen to your creativity, listen to your passion, listen to what drives you. And then you've got all the other stuff, you know, you lose friends and family and you lose financial security and, and you wonder why you're doing it. You know? And I said to you just before I joined this podcast, Rebecca, the hummingbird, if I can share that story quickly. Oh, please do. Yeah, I mean, I was deliberating because, you know, as a writer, and again, I'm, I am i guess I would call myself a writer now, but but it's much bigger than just writing for me. It's it's about changing the way people see this concept. So I was having one of my, my kind of morning reflections, and, you know, I was thinking, should I just give this whole thing up? Because, you know, I'm not a millionaire. I'd, I can't bankroll this project. It's costing money. You know, it seems every time I breathe, it's costing me money in relation to this book. And I was thinking, no, but... Yeah, what else would I do? I go back to the regular consulting I do with leadership and helping align leadership, which ironically is part of this book as well. And then just at that point, I saw a hummingbird, and the you know the spiritual significance of a hummingbird is you know when you're going through transformation and transition, um, don't give up. And then just at that point. I got your reminder email that, you know, whether I was doing the podcast today or not. And so everything's happening for a reason. And, you know, the same in the world of leadership. I mean, it's, who knows what's going to happen next? But one thing we do know is that the disruption that we're facing, be it self-imposed or through macro level things that are happening right now and will happen, like we have no way of controlling that. And so we can either go against the tide or we can go with it. And we can try an uncharted territory, that path, or we can rely on what we've always relied on. But the future needs a new way of doing things, a new way of seeing things. I've read a lot for this book, as you can imagine. I've done a lot of research, peer-reviewed research, and nothing exists on the subject anyway. But there's a lot of material on leadership as well. And I read a lot, lot of material that says, why bother trying to change? Because the system, we can't change the system. And my conversation is, well, why not? what can we do that nudges this forward every single day slightly? That's what's underpinning the book is to nudge this forward and and really get this into the hands of people that may want to make a difference, however, incrementally. That's my initial thinking on that. I've got many more thoughts on what it's like to wake up at three in the morning in a cold sweat and wonder if anyone will ever read the book and (laughs) what does that mean? So thank you for allowing me to share.
0: I'm so glad you did. I think that people need to hear this because I know people are experiencing it. I can say I have experienced it, even with the podcast pre-launch. I mean, I went into this with no podcasting experience, with not even really being a podcast listener and took the time to research what it took to make it happen. And I made it happen. But that doesn't mean I didn't go through self-doubt along the way, both prior to my launch and after, Yeah. even still now. Um, And I think we all experience that struggle. Like, is my message important enough? Is what I'm doing valuable enough? Is there risk involved? Like how much risk is this? Like you talked about people seeing what you're doing and they don't see the either don't see the value or they feel like you're upsetting the apple cart too much. Like to be honest, when you think about controversies in history, the earth goes around the sun instead of the opposite. <laughs> that was a controversial subject hundreds of years ago. What if nobody suggested otherwise? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big example, but, you know, it's important for people to, to disrupt the status quo.
1: Well, it's true. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I didn't want to write this book. You know, and one of the things I should have added there, I wanted to be that leader that fitted in. You know, I wanted to drink the Kool-Aid. We go to school, we go to college, we go to university. It's all in pursuit of this job, isn't it? Of this rung on the ladder, you know, and it's kind of, well, now we're in it. And it, We want to desperately fit in because we don't want to be these social pariahs. But then there's a feeling that won't leave us, which is we're part of a broken system and we're actually contributing more to it. And so I wanted to drink the Kool-Aid. I didn't want to be fired from you know four different consulting firms globally. So what happened to me when I was... Clearly, there was a bit of a wound licking experience and it was very cathartic for me. And I I started to, to think, well, it must be me. There must be something wrong with me, must not there? Because conventional linear level thinking and the world would tell me that there was. It just didn't fit in because, you know, it just didn't fit into the culture. But I kept then asking myself, Rebecca, like, I've done a lot of leadership development. I've developed a lot of C-suite. I've been the guy that's put those one page laminate menus on the wall that everyone abides by, you know, I thought, okay, so I see that. And then I see the the books that the leaders read, you know, all the great leadership gurus. And then I see the way they lead. And there's a complete incongruence between all of those three, vari- those data points that I just mentioned. And I was wondering why, why, why is that the case? And why is it that when people speak up against something that, that doesn't work, they automatically get sidelined? And so I started to get really curious, like the whistleblower. Nobody thanks the whistleblower pre, during, but they always thank the whistleblower post because something changes, legislation comes into effect, or something works a bit more efficiently, or a corrupt business goes out of business, all because of the whistleblower. And then we thank them, which is ironic for me. And, and so I kind of, you know, I want to create that culture where we can listen and to and embrace and encourage the fired leader to be exactly who they are on the tin. They're recruited for it. But when they demonstrate it, they're then turfed from the organization. They've thrown out. So my whole journey, I got curious about why I'd been fired. And I went and did all the research, review and everything like that. And and I came up with the fact that nobody talks about this subject which is one that I decided that I needed to be the person to talk about it. And yeah, it's going to upset people. It'll be divisive. Mm-hmm. And there'll be some people out there listening or looking at the book and says, this guy's just got a big chip on his shoulder. Fine. You know, everybody can think what they want. I'm writing for a progressive reader, someone that knows there's a system that's broken, someone that's been too scared to say anything, but they're visionary and they're progressive in are thinking, and they know it's time for something new to happen. Because you know, if if we didn't have that attitude, we'd still think the the world was flat, for instance. You know, or we'd still be uh, using record players. We wouldn't be onto the iPod now, as we talked about earlier. Or you know, so many other things that have happened in our world, and yet we attribute the great progress made by these people. We don't talk about the fact that on that journey for them, they were either treated as pariahs, considered unstable. You know, reference back to the Wright brothers, or Thomas Edison, you know, before he invented the light bulb, did you know he failed about a thousand times before that? Like, nobody ever talks about the failures. Everybody just says when it works, it works, and it's always worked. But no, it hasn't. It's a bloody hard task to think differently from the crowd, from the herd. And we don't like people who do that because it makes us uncomfortable. And I truly believe that it's through that discomfort that we can grow and we can distinguish ourselves. And Organizations out there that want to distinguish themselves in, in a post COVID era, if we could even talk about post COVID, because I think more of that's coming, they're gonna need to take more risks, to your point earlier. They're gonna they're gonna need to try and find or keep the talent that just doesn't care about hierarchy or bureaucracy or waiting so many months to get a timesheet code to be resourceful and entrepreneurial. You know, history is not gonna remember those people.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are powerful statements and very important. I mean, it, it's almost like, to we're facing parts of our human nature. When you talk about needing a sense of belonging, that's a very real part of who we are. It's a survival instinct that we have. So when we um, are rejected through either being uh, sidelined or being outright fired, uh, of course, that's going to lead to some level of pain uh, and challenge and and self-doubt because that's how we're built as people. Mm. But what we're really talking about is being able to acknowledge who we are as, as human beings, that those tendencies that we have, they're really built to help us, you know, survive if the world had been as it was thousands of years ago. But today, um, really, challenging thoughts is it really all that controversial when we have so many examples in history of where challenging the status quo or the thinking of the status quo has led to such tremendous breakthroughs in human advancement? Why is this not the time for us to understand the importance of challenging those ideas or our status quo and looking for those opportunities for us to improve or make make things better? And, what better way through being a leader, whether it be within an organization, outside of an organization as a thought leader, and presenting these new ideas and leading other people behind you that are quite literally seeing a lot of the same trends and ideas that you're talking about, it just afraid to speak up. So kudos to you for the courage that you're putting out in the world. I'm sure it's frustrating to have folks not understand the vision or understand the value of what you're doing, but clearly you do, and clearly you have a passion around making a difference. And so I commend you on that. And I I can't wait to see the book. You know, I can't wait to read the book uh, because I know how much you've put into it. Thank you. Uh, But I've got another question I've got to ask you. So throughout the conversation, you've talked about some of the concerns you might have in relation to if we don't right the ship in relation to leadership as we move into the future. But there's got to be some things that might bring you some optimism or some hope. What are those things that might make you optimistic about our future?
1: Mm. Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business Review, I think she talks about creating the conditions to uh, you know generate the fertile soil to have difficult conversations, and you know a host of other HBR um, contributors talks talk about this concept too. And I think one of the things I'm optimistic about is that. Yeah, you know, and and my friends over at Corporate Rebels as well, you know, making work more fun, and you know they they went against the grain as well and wrote a book about how to really transform the organization to be more fun for people working. And you know, I, I'm seeing the sprouts of that fertile soil all over the world in the work that I do around this book and developing this brand. Also, I've talked to must be a few hundred people by now, anecdotally, including several New York Times best-selling leadership authors. And you know, again, these are just people. They have the same insecurities as you and me. They they go to the bathroom the same way as you and me. And everybody I have ever spoke to has said this is needed. There is an appetite for this. And you know, what makes me optimistic at building on that platform is that people want to have the conversation. Now, the language that we have a conversation with may be different for different audiences. So the CEO listening might want me to talk to them about how much money it's costing his or her organisation right now when they fire leaders and the impact that that's having on their productivity, the team's productivity that that leader leaves behind, as well as the alumni, um, as well as the client base of that organisation. So that language might be appropriate to the CEO. You know, HR-focused individuals might be interested in the culture that's created or disintegrated from a, a leader leaving into those types of circumstances. So, you know, what makes me optimistic is that we're having small pockets of people as well in organisations wanting to have these conversations. And so, what I love to do, and in fact, that's one of the things I'm doing this whole book for as well, is to create an ecosystem of fired leaders. So people that can actually build upon the ideas of one another, and doesn't matter where they are globally. And so, you know, I'm optimistic that the appetite's there and people will be taking more risks eventually. It's like the shoehorn effect. We just got to encourage them to take risks. I'm writing this book regardless of, of how it's being received as well, because I know that it can impact, if it just impacts one person's life and attitude, that's enough for me from a personal perspective of being optimistic.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. It puts a lot of purpose behind what you're doing. And I can say, I believe that this conversation today has made a difference. And if not with someone in my listening audience, it has made a difference for me mm-hmm. personally. So thank you, Paul, for joining me. Thank you. So Paul McCarthy, working on his book about the fired leader. So if you're interested in following his journey, which I highly recommend that you do, follow him on, out on LinkedIn. I'm going to put the link to his profile. In the episode notes, so you can find it there. Uh, but definitely look him up on LinkedIn, Paul McCarthy. Uh, and again, Paul, thank you so much for an honest uh, and valuable conversation today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Rebecca, as well for, for taking the risk to, to have someone like me on your on your series as well. It means so much to me, and and both personally as well as professionally. So, you know, these things are timely, and and I think you know, ignoring the conventional approach to how these things should happen, um, you know, can yield some significant progress. So thank you so much for having me.
0: I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Paul is not only a defender of the fired leader, He is also a defender of innovation and a healthy work culture. As someone who has extensive leadership experience across multiple organizations, he understands the unique demands of leading an organization, as well as the courage it takes to challenge the status quo in order to shape a better future. I do feel the need to clarify one thing. When Paul discusses fired leaders, he isn't referring to those leaders that are fired for justifiable reasons. In fact, I'm confident he's more concerned about the leaders who aren't fired but demonstrate the same type of poor behavior. But that aside, he is referring to those leaders that have been pushed out for challenging the status quo, even when they've been hired for that exact reason. These organizations may justify firing these leaders by pointing to reasons like poor culture fit, or might say they aren't a team player, or for some flavor of they are too disagreeable. There are other justifications that may fall in the same category. But at the end of the day, these could simply fall back on a common theme. They made us feel uncomfortable, and they don't fit in. I'm going to say something here that may seem odd at first. In many ways, all of this is standard human behavior. It's somewhat normal for us to initially reject the unfamiliar because in our minds, it feels wrong or threatening in some way. This is how our brains work. In an attempt to keep us safe, our initial reaction is to push away the unfamiliar and those things or people that don't seem to fit into our in-group. While this may be a natural reaction, it does not need to stand. In fact, it's detrimental to organizations when it does stand. Organizations of today can't settle into the comfort of the status quo without taking some level of risk and staying competitive and changing with the times. Over and over, we've seen examples of organizations that snuggle into the status quo with a blanket, a good book, and a hot chocolate because it seems comfortable to them. But that comfort can only last for so long. Before something disrupts your market, and you find yourself scrambling to reclaim your position, your customers, and your ability to shape the future. At that time, who will you turn to? Likely a disruptive leader, who you will bring in to challenge the status quo, to spur innovation, and change your course. So, at that point, after you may have pushed out the other leaders who have challenged the status quo in the past, what will happen this time? It's not up to the disruptive leader to figure that out. They may know exactly what to do. It's really up to you to allow them to. Provocative? Maybe. Truthful? Always. This is the path to a stronger organization. And this is the path that will truly shape a better future. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Paul McCarthy and his path to redefine leadership, follow him on Twitter at Fired Leadership. You can also find him on LinkedIn, and I've placed a link in the episode notes to find him there. Before you go, make sure to subscribe to Humans Now and Then to catch the amazing guests and conversations I have lined up. You don't want to miss him. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.